I love drama films, especially historical dramas. Uh, it is my excuse to live in the shoes of another person, as it were. But most drama films, at least the drama films produced in Hollywood, do not contain a main character. They leave out a character in their film. And that character is God. And this really, in essence, is the secular worldview. The secular outlook on life is that life works without God. More specifically, the secular view says that because suffering exists in the world, there could not be a God who is good, wise, just, and especially all-powerful. Suffering, therefore, according to the secular worldview, suffering is, is mere coincidence, chance, fate, bad luck, or at best, if God does exist, he is cruel. He's not good. He's not just. And he's not wise. Now, this secular worldview is contrary to the Bible. It's at odds with the Bible, specifically the book of Job. The drama film called the book of Job presents an all-powerful God, an absolutely supremely powerful God who is also good, just, and wise. And unlike the Hollywood films, this is what makes Job one of the best historical dramas ever. Because it presents reality. Now when you read these first few chapters of the book of Job, if you are thinking, and if you are wondering, a question comes to your mind. And here's the question. Who is responsible for all of this suffering that Job went through? Who is responsible for all of this carnage that took place? Who is responsible Well, the answer is nuanced. The answer is not straightforward. There are many things, there's my air quotes, there are many things responsible for Job's suffering. People are responsible, nature is responsible. Satan is responsible, and God himself. 
I want you to see this. First, people are responsible for the suffering. Even people with an evil, malicious intent. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. And the Sabaeans, oh, those evil Sabaeans, they attacked and took them. What did they take? They took the oxen and the donkeys. Took all of it away from Job. And the Chaldeans, these people also destroy some of Job's livestock and servants. Verse 17. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, another reporter said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. People are responsible for Job's suffering. But it's not only people, it's nature. In verse 16, we read about lightning. Look at it, verse 16 of chapter 1. While he was still speaking, another also came, one of these reporters, and said, the fire of God. It's a way of speaking about lightning. The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And in verse 18, a huge windstorm, another natural disaster, inflicted this pain on Job. Perhaps it was a tornado. We don't know it was a windstorm of some sort. Look at verse 18. While he was still speaking, one of these reporters, he came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. In verse 19, behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. Who's responsible for Job's suffering? It's people. It's natural disasters. But in addition to these, it is Satan himself. He inflicted suffering on Job. Satan is also responsible. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. He's directly responsible. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Satan himself is responsible for Job's suffering. So people are responsible. Natural disasters are responsible. Satan is responsible But God, God is ultimately responsible for Job's suffering. I want you to see this. I want you to see this. It was, it was God who initiated the conversation with Satan in the first place. God took the initiative. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, He initiated it. From where do you come from? So God orchestrated. He he started this conversation with a question to Satan. And then what does he do? He invites a question about suffering. Verse 8. Look at it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
For there is no one like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He's inviting suffering upon Job. And even in chapter 2, verse 2, in the second round of suffering, when Job loses his health, we see that it's the Lord who takes initiative. Again, he does it again. Chapter 2, verse 2, look at it. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And then verse 3, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So God initiates the suffering for Job. He initiates it. He invites it. But not only that, not only does God initiate the suffering of Job, God permits it to be carried out. You notice that he permits it to be carried out. Notice that Satan must seek permission. He must seek permission from God to harm Job. Job chapter 1 verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand upon him. So the Lord, or so Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And again, again, in chapter 2, in the second round of suffering that Job goes through, Satan asked permission from God to inflict suffering on Job. And God grants the permission. Look at verse 6. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. The point, the point that I'm making is that since God initiated the conversation with Satan and permitted Satan to harm Job, God is the one ultimately in control here in this situation. God is the one in control. It's not Satan. It's why Martin Luther has famously said, even Satan is God's Satan. Even even Job himself, the man who suffered greatly, even he recognized that God was ultimately responsible for his suffering. Job said in chapter 2, verse 10, look at it with me. But Job said to his wife, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept adversity from God? Or shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And the text makes clear. It makes clear in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Certainly, the text would not say It would not say that Job did not sin with his lips if what Job said about God being ultimately responsible for his suffering was wrong. Text wouldn't say that he did not sin. Job did not sin with his lips in attributing his suffering ultimately to the Lord. Perhaps even clearer, look at chapter 1, verse 21. Job said this, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Look at it. The Lord gave, and Satan has taken away. No. It doesn't say that, does it? Job says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And notice what it says about Job in verse 22. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Again, the text would not say this if what Job said about God bringing on his suffering was not true, was sinful. Here's what I'm saying. Many things are responsible for Job's suffering. But ultimately, God is the one responsible for his suffering. And so here, as we start to look at what this means for us, here is how we can apply this to our lives. Remember, the book of Job is wisdom literature. It's wisdom for life. It teaches us reality about life. And here is the lesson that we learn from this, these chapters in the book of Job. God is sovereign. He is in control. He is sovereign. He reigns supreme over all of the suffering in your life. That's the message. God is sovereign over all the suffering in your, in your life. Listen, it's not right. It's not correct. It's not biblical to say that God is in charge of all of the good things that happen to me, but he's not in charge of all of the bad things that happen to me. We can't say that. Yes, yes, God uses what we say he uses secondary means, like people with evil intent, like natural disasters, like Satan himself. He even uses your own decisions for good or for ill to bring on suffering. But he uses all of these as secondary means. He is the primary cause. He is ultimately responsible for your and my suffering. So, what I want this morning is I want, I want us as a church, I want us to be, to be rock settled. Take it to the bank. Die on this hill. That all of the suffering you have experienced, you are experiencing or you will experience. All of it. 
or all the suffering that you walk through with a loved one, a friend, or a church member, all of that suffering comes from God's fatherly hand. All of it. Cancer. Mental illness. Chronic infections. Especially ones you can't figure out. They just reoccur over and over again. Broken bones. COVID-19. Allergies. Unequally yoked marriages. A Christian married to an non-Christian. Car accidents, abuse of all forms, divorce, infidelity, job pressures, loneliness, abandonment, multiple sclerosis, teeth pain, (laughs) spousal hostility to Christianity, singleness, but wanting to be married, barrenness of the womb, single parenting, C. diff, aging parents, an estranged father, difficult relationships, Alzheimer's, chronic pain, a wayward son or daughter, financial struggles and pressures, job loss, Hip pain. Foot pain. Those are real for me right now. Stroke. Skin rash. A broken toy. Handicapped child. The death of a mother. Of a father. Of a son-in-law of a loved one, of a friend. Your suffering, your pain, your trials is not the product of randomness. It's not the product of the forces of evil triumphing over the forces of good. And I use those words deliberately. Let's think about it for a minute. Randomness. Randomness. Think about it with me here for a moment. Doesn't it seem a bit random from our perspective that that Job's suffering came upon him all in the same day? At least in the first round of it? I mean, it certainly seemed random to Job. I mean, why did the lightning just so happen to fall on the sheep and the servants? And and, and in a matter of minutes, how is it that a great wind just so happened to hit the house where his children were staying and the house blew apart and everyone was killed? It's not randomness. It's not chance. It's not faint. It's not bad luck. It's not having a bad day. It's God. It's God. 
or the forces of good and evil. Now, there are forces of good and evil, as it were, but these forces are not independent or inanimate, like the force on Star Wars. No, no, there are forces, and we learn from the book of Job and the Bible what stands behind these forces, God and Satan. And what Job teaches us is these are not equal forces. They're not equal at all. God's power, as we've seen, is absolute and supreme. Satan's power is secondary and subject to God's. God is absolutely sovereign over all of the suffering in your life. There is no randomness. There is no forces of evil triumphing over the forces of good. Now that, what I've just said, can be a mind blow (laughs) for you. Some of you. Some of you are with me. You're getting it. You're following me. You you agree. And so here's what I want to ask. What do you do with this truth? What does it do for you knowing that God is sovereign over all of the suffering in your life? What is your response? Well, what was the response of Job? Well, as we saw, Job clearly recognized, he clearly recognized that God was ultimately the cause of his suffering. And yet, the text makes clear that Job did not sin, even with his lips, and he did not blame God. Think about that for a minute. Think about that. God is ultimately responsible, and yet Job did not blame God. You see a tension? Do you see a tension there? What do you do with that tension? How do you hold the fact that Job saw God ultimately responsible, and yet he didn't attribute blame in any way to God? Well, it's a tension that many, many people have struggled with and wrestled with. And you know what? I'll be honest with you this morning. I'm struggling with it and I'm wrestling with it. And here is my best answer to this question. I'm going to answer it, but I want to say before I do, there's a bit of a tension that we're just going to have to live with. So here's my attempt at answer to this question. The word blame, as I looked it up and as I studied it, the word blame could be translated charge with wrong. It's the underlying word there in the Hebrew. So when we understand it like that, when we read it like that, Job did not charge God with wrong. In other words, Job did not say that God had an evil intent. God was not malicious in his intent. And Job could say he could not charge God with wrong. He could only do that 
The reason he could only do that is because Job, as we see here in these chapters, Job was demonstrating that he was trusting in the Lord. He was worshiping the Lord even in the middle of his suffering. Yes, yes, don't get me wrong, Job questioned. If you read along in the book of Job, I'm sure most of you had, he's got many questions that he poses to God. He wants answers. Job not only had questions, he wrestled. He wrestled hard. Job did not see clearly, but he trusted. Trusted, as did someone else in history, the poet William Cooper. William Cooper wrote many hymns that we sing. And if you know the life of William Cooper, this man suffered with severe depression his entire life. And he even attempted to take his life on multiple occasions throughout his entire life, all the way up until his old age. But Cooper pens his trust in the Lord with these eloquent words, and and they're so beautiful that it, it, it just captures sort of the essence of what Job teaches us. Listen to what he says. Listen to these words. God moves... In a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable mines, like a gold mine, a coal mine, deep in unfathomable mines of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. And then Cooper says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. Trusting the Lord amidst pain, amidst loss, amidst severe, severe suffering, suffering even of any kind, is not easy. It's not easy at all. It's easy for you. Come talk to me and tell me your secret. (laughs) It's not easy. Job struggled. He wasn't perfect. We're going to see that as we go on in this book. Why do we struggle to trust the Lord in our suffering? Why is it so hard? I want to give you three reasons why. 
Three reasons why I think we find it hard to, to trust the Lord in our suffering. First, perspective. Suffering causes us to lose perspective. That's just what happens. It's what happens. When we suffer, when we're hurting, when we're feeling pain, it causes us to lose perspective. We become overwhelmed and we think, I have it worse than Job. Or or we actually don't maybe think that. We think something a little more subtle. We think they don't really understand what I'm going through. No one understands what's happening to me. What we think? We lose perspective. Listen, have you, has anyone here had boils that form around your skin hair follicles that feel like a knife being constantly jabbed into your entire body? That's what Job was dealing with. Now, I'm not suggesting we compare ourselves to Job's suffering to sort of alleviate the suffering that we experience. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Job. (laughs) No, the book of Job does not call you to minimize your suffering. It never calls you. The Bible never calls us to be stoic about our suffering. The point is, is that when you suffer, you lose perspective. It's what happens. But it's why the book of Job was written. It was written to teach you and I wisdom in our suffering and that we might recognize that God is sovereign and therefore we have an opportunity to demonstrate our trust and our worship in him, even amidst the pain and trial and suffering. The book of Job gives us perspective So I want to say, I want to say when you are suffering, and we all are here to one degree or another, but when you feel it's very particularly intense, you don't know where to turn, you're at your rope's end, go to the book of Job. As someone once said, where do you find God? God's office is located at the end of your rope. That's where you find him. And you'll find him in the book of Job. You got to read a lot of the book to find him, but you will find him. You will find him. Secondly, source. Source. If our suffering clearly comes from outside of ourselves, this is again a reason why we fail to trust God, why it's so hard to trust God, and it's because if our suffering comes from outside of ourselves, from like nature or, or we think it's Satan is attacking us or whatever, it's, it's, it's generally easier to trust God. Like I, I know God's bringing this on. But if the suffering is self-inflicted, I find it harder to trust God. For example, I fail to stop at a stop, stop sign, I get in a car accident, and I'm paralyzed. Or, or even more general, I have made, I personally have made some very 
poor and sinful decisions in my life, and now I suffer the consequences for those things. And you do too. You do too. But think about this. How is it that God can use other people and natural disasters to bring on suffering, but he can't use you? Somehow we think we're exempt. You can use your spouse, but then your spouse thinks they're exempt. This is how it works. God is sovereign over your sins and poor choices. Which sins and poor choices bring on suffering sometimes in your life? I think it's hard to trust God because we somehow think that God doesn't use us. Third, I think sometimes it's hard to trust God because we want answers. We want answers. So in your suffering, you want an answer. Why is this happening to me? I mean, you want an answer. And even if you're spiritual, Lord, I want to learn from this. Teach me what you want me to learn from this. Why is this happening? But the book of Job teaches us, as I mentioned last sermon from this book, that it is not ultimately necessary for you to know why. This is what the book teaches us. It's what we have to come to grips with. It may be helpful to understand why, but it is not necessary. It is necessary, though. It is necessary not to understand why you are suffering. It is necessary to understand who brought about your suffering. Suffering, to paraphrase one, allows us, suffering allows us to leave the prison of how and why for the freedom of who. Suffering allows us to leave the prison of how and why for the freedom of who. You see, the wisdom we learn from God and His ways in these first few chapters, there's many more things we learn, but for today, it's that God is sovereign over all of the suffering in your life. And this truth, it's, it's illustrated here in the book of Job, it's narrative, so it's, it's an illustration. We, we learn this truth by illustration, but this truth, that God is sovereign over all the suffering in your life, is made crystal clear in the New Testament. And I want you to see this in Romans chapter 8. Please turn there with me. Romans chapter 8, it's page 1132, if you're borrowing a Bible from the, from the pew. Romans chapter 8, verse um, page 1132. Now, something to remind you about, Romans chapter 8 is a chapter about suffering. 
We forget that, but, but it's, a, it's a passage, it's a chapter about suffering. Let's look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that it is to be revealed to us. It's a chapter on suffering, and so in light of that, I want you to look down at verse 28. Verse 28 says, And we know that God causes, ultimately responsible, He causes all things to work together for good, including suffering. And therefore, since God causes all things, even suffering, jump down to verse 32. Here's the logic, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son from suffering is the implication. He who did not spare his son from suffering, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? Because God orchestrated the suffering of Jesus. Because he was ultimately responsible for the suffering of Jesus, we could say the greatest suffering known to man, how will God not also freely give us what we need? Or, or to put it differently, if God ultimately allows suffering in your life, he can certainly take it away. And if he doesn't take it away, if God does not choose to take your suffering away in this life, it goes on to say your suffering will not separate you from his love. From his love. It's all about, again, it's all about the who of suffering. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. All of those adjectives to describe suffering, all that suffering? And the answer is nothing will. Listen, God caused suffering to happen to Job, but he never abandoned him in the process. And he will not abandon you and me. He will never leave us or forsake us. You see, Christianity, as one has said, is not ultimately a defense from pain and suffering. Rather, Christianity is the message of God's rescue through pain and suffering. That's what it's about. And so because God is in control, he is sovereign over all of our suffering. Because as the case, as Romans 8 wants us to see, we trust him. We worship him. We love him. We cling to him. We trust him. Just like an airline pilot. You know, most of you have probably been on an airplane and, you know, this time of year, we have these big white puffy clouds in the sky. And you've been on an airplane and you've flown through these clouds and you look out your window and everything just goes white and you can't see anything. Well, I have a newsflash for you. Neither can the pilots. 
But the pilots don't rely on their sight, do they? They rely on something else. They trust in something else. They trust in the instruments. They trust in their gauges. So it is with us. When the road is dark and we cannot see, we rely and we trust on the one who made the road. Now there are, trust me, I know you, there are many questions you still have about this passage, about the book of Job. I have more questions about the book of Job. As I mentioned in the first message, it is a fascinating and intriguing book. But unfortunately, we cannot say everything there is to say in one sermon. The point today is that God is sovereign over all of the suffering in your life. And and then, therefore, I think that means, I think our response should be to trust him. To worship him. And I found these letters from some women There's a couple women who beautifully illustrate trust in the Lord during difficulty. They wrote these letters over 200 years ago, and their words are as clear as and apical today as they were back then. On September 24th, 1754, the son-in-law of the great American pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the greatest theologian this country has ever known. Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law died unexpectedly. And it was actually days before he was about to become the very first president of the College of New Jersey, which is now known as Princeton University. And his widow, Esther, Jonathan Edwards' daughter, wrote this to a family friend. Here's what she says. Your most kind letter of condolence gave me inexpressible delight and at the same time opened afresh all of the avenues of grief. And again, probe the deep wound that death has given me. And then again, her husband just died. My loss. Shall I attempt to say how great my loss is? God only can know, and to him alone I would carry my complaint. Had not God supported me by these two considerations? First, by showing the right he has to his own creatures, to dispose of them when and in what manner he pleases. And secondly, by enabling me to someday follow my husband beyond the grave into the eternal world and there to view him in unspeakable glory and happiness. And if I hadn't known these two things, that the Lord is sovereign and I'm going to join my husband someday, I should not long before this have been sunk among the dead. 
and been covered with the cloud of the valley. And then she says, God has wise ends in all that he does. My husband's death did not come upon me by chance, and I rejoice that I am in the hand of such a God. Not less than eight months later, Jonathan Edwards himself died. Jonathan Edwards' wife, Sarah Edwards, wrote to her daughter Esther, who just had lost her husband, not nearly eight months prior. And Sarah Edwards writes these moving words, My dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him Jonathan Edwards, so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Esther and Sarah understood and trusted in an all-sovereign, wise good and just God, even amid the pain of loss. Brothers and sisters, whatever suffering you find yourselves in this day, may you be able to say with these two women, with deep affection in your heart, God has wise ends in all that he does. And thus God has my heart and I love to be with him. Amen.